Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Jeremy Lent back to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Jeremy is an author whose writings investigate the patterns of thought that have led our civilization to its current crisis of sustainability. His most recent work, The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning, traces the deep historical foundations of our modern worldview. Jeremy is currently working on his next book, provisionally entitled The Web of Meaning, an integration of modern science with traditional wisdom, which combines findings in cognitive science, systems theory, and traditional Chinese and Buddhist thought, offering a framework that integrates both science and meaning in a coherent whole. So thank you very much, Jeremy, for joining me once again on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. You're welcome, Fergus. Great to be sharing the space with you. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, a very different world from when we last spoke. Um, and uh, yeah, C- can you maybe just for those uh, who aren't maybe familiar with your work or, or heard the previous podcast, maybe give us a brief uh, overview of, of, of what you're doing and your background? Yeah, well, sure. Well, um, basically, I'm, uh, I'm an author and uh, I write articles and my focus is on primarily the underlying patterns of meaning that uh, really structure how societies work um, with the whole notion that we really need to understand those underlying patterns in order to uh, really see where we, where we are, where we've come from, where we're headed um, with the recognition that it's actually those underlying foundations of thought that will really drive our future. So I wrote a, a book called The Patterning Instinct which is a cultural history of humanity's search for meaning, which came out a couple of years ago, which looks at the different ways in which uh, cultures have structured meaning into the universe, all the way from earliest hunter-gatherer times to the present and looking out into the future. Um, And I'm continually writing articles about what's going on in the world right now from that kind of underlying perspective. And right now, I'm, I'm finishing a book that'll be published next spring, um, which really comes out with a foundation for a different kind of meaning-making than the dominant one our world um, takes for granted right now, one that's based on interconnection and one that really integrates some of the great traditional wisdom of uh, human history with modern uh, findings in modern science. Wow, very important project, Jeremy. Uh, maybe we'll talk, talk a little bit about that later and, and, and get a, a kind of a picture of where you're going with, with that research and so forth. Maybe just also uh, I'd like to start and, and get a sense um, of uh, where people are, what, where they're, and, 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 and what's on their mind, um, series of interlocking uh, crises, uh, environmental crises, all kinds of crises at the moment. Um, what, what, what's particularly on your mind? What, what are you thinking about at the moment, Jeremy? Well, right now, I, I think like so many people out there, looking at what we're in the middle of right now, just in the, deep in the middle of this whole coronavirus pandemic, um, is to try to get a deeper sense of how it's actually going to play out. What are the real deeper currents 
that we need to be aware of. Um, which leads to an equally important question as to where are the right points in which those of us who care about the future um, can kind of intervene in what's going on in the most effective way right now to try to steer things in a more hopeful direction. So that's a lot of what, um, you know, some things I've been writing about and thinking about right now. Yeah, I, I, I was listening to an interview with a, a Jungian uh, therapist uh, called John Beebe yesterday, and he was talking about this, uh, the importance of having an image of, of, uh, of a, a problem or a situation or having a pattern that one can recognize. They, they talk a lot about archetypes and so forth um, in, in, in the Jungian work. But I'm just wondering, uh, given your interest in, in patterning and uh, patterns, what patterns do you think are emerging? Is it too early to to draw any conclusions? Is is that okay when things are, you know, going through fundamental change? That there'll be a period of of uh, maybe uh, well, this is a, you know obviously a crisis, and we're right in the middle of the crisis. But we're starting to see uh, uh, governments take certain action around the world, ways of responding, uh, looking forward, planning uh, how they're going to deal with with, with the world, um, with the economy, and, and various things going forward. What, what, what kind of patterns, uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I think that it's helpful to see a, a major crisis like the coronavirus pandemic as really like a crucible um, with the sense that if we think what a, a crucible is, basically, it's this. it's like where you sort of take something and you're using heat to melt down what the different structures have been before with the idea of reshaping something. Um, and that, I think, is what's actually going on right now. So what we're seeing is uh, the, the, the big question is what is the, what is the sort of shape that we're seeing things kind of uh, melt from and uh, melt into and sort of harden into going forward? And I, definitely I think it's too early to say right now, but in a way... Um, you have the different uh, groups, uh, special sort of interest groups, as we're going into this virus, all looking at it as an opportunity to sort of um, establish and firm up their particular points of view. So, for example, from the authoritarian uh, right-wing perspective, you know, you, you're getting a lot of uh, people taking this as an opportunity to just further increase the divisions and prejudices and the, uh, the um, sense of separation between uh, different countries and different groups within a country. Um, you also get the <coughs> real authoritarian powers looking at it as an opportunity to establish the surveillance state even more strongly and to dismantle democracy um, even more uh, extremely um, all around the world, you know, from Hungary to the United States to Israel um, uh, to China to other places. Um, so those are some of the disturbing trends we see. And then at the same time, you see some very hopeful trends. You see um, basic con uh, people sort of everywhere recognizing that the inequities that have been existing so far are even more extreme and wanting to do something to make a significant difference. So you get new ideas like, uh, for example, universal basic income or um, universal health care in the United States, things like that, becoming much more mainstream. 
And you also get a sense of people recognizing the importance of communities, like people banding together in community, the sense of global community, the sense of a shared humanity working together to resolve something. So it's still too early to know. Are we going to find this crucible, as it sort of cools down, harden into a more authoritarian right-wing world or a world that is really um, kind of reorganizing along the lines of shared human values? I think that's the, the, the thing that we need to sort of get a better understanding of uh, to um, sort of feel into where, where we might be going on that. Yeah, yeah. How, how much do you think we can do, Jeremy, and at different levels? I mean, firstly, at individual level and at social level. Uh, government is uh, is another question, a very big question, and there are all kinds of uh, problems there in terms of governance, in terms of in in, in, dif- in different uh, countries and so forth. But is, is how much can we actually do? Well, I think that there is a lot more that each of us as individuals can do to affect the the direction our whole global civilization is taking than people are usually aware of. You know, oftentimes people just get the sense that it's almost like the future is a spectator sport and each of us are just kind of watching what goes on and we might have a view like, oh, this is going to happen or that's going to happen. <clears throat> but somehow we sort of feel that our own perspectives are separate from what's going on out there. But I, I come from a... a a sort of a systems perspective where we look at the fact that any system we're looking at, we're actually part of while we're observing it too. And we need to recognize that the very ideas that we form and the communications we make and um, the ways in which we make sense of things are actually part of shaping that future. So each of us um, has a responsibility in that sense to try to really understand what's going on and try to um, make sure that we are having an impact that leads in the direction that we might hope. So I think very much we have to look when uh, we look at the reality of what's going on from the perspective of values, that it's not just a matter of uh, this or that political program or this or that um, sort of idea to get behind, but it has to do a lot with um, sort of the ways in which we, what we see as truly meaningful in life in general. And a lot of the values of our dominant society that have been very destructive have been based on the sense of separation, individuals being separate from each other, uh, and humans being separate from the earth, countries separate from each other in some sort of zero-sum battle. Um, And most of us as human beings actually um, thrive when we're looking at our connectedness with each other and connectedness with community, connectedness with a sense of shared humanity and shared life with all sentient beings. And I think that one of the most important things we can do right now is when we see what's going on and where we're reacting to it, to come from that place of values. And if we do care about connectedness and about a positive future uh, for ourselves on this, on this planet, to really focus on where can we establish stronger bonds of connection with others around us. Yeah, yeah. Right. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about that because that, 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 there is a, uh, a lot of work going on and some very exciting initiatives and positive trends in terms of community work, uh, community sustainable communities, resilient communities. Uh, it, and it, it's very inspiring. Um, now, you, you wrote a, a, a piece recently, uh, 
coronavirus spells the end of the neoliberal era era and what's next and i talked about the neoliberal era uh, again and again in the podcast but um wh- why do you say that wh- wh- what makes you think that it's the end of the era i know i know people will be talking about this for some time the imf and itself written various reports and people you know the financial times saying things like that but actually what, what, what what's your argument yeah, that's a great question. And and I I'm very aware of the fact that back when the the sort of uh great recession started to kick off uh in 2008, so over 10 years ago, like, this was the sort of thing that people were saying around that time. Oh, this is the end of neoliberalism. This is everything's going to everything's coming apart and things are going to change. And of course what happened is after a year or two of disruption uh, those whole same neoliberal structures only got further strengthened. And uh, all of these sort of sense of excitement of what's possible got sort of damped down to become really nothing other than just frustration uh, and um, in some places despair. So I'm aware of that. But I think that what we do need to look at is what is going on with uh, coronavirus right now is far, far bigger than what happened in 2008. Um, and it, it's, it, we have to think not just in terms of right now, the sort of short term, like, okay, things shut down, now we're going back to normal again, uh, or like at least people in the mainstream would like to think it's sort of back to normal, whatever normal was that was so abnormal beforehand. Um, and, but I think what we need to really look at is a bigger, wider arc of what's actually happening, that we're just beginning to enter into um, a shift, a disruption in the global economy that is really greater than anything since the Great Depression. And of course, you know, when something like the Great Depression happened, um, at first, it took a while for people to realize that what was going on. The um, stocks fell, then they came back uh, for a few months, then they, it took a, even like a few years for the full impact to flow through both the stock market and the economy and the whole political um, infrastructure of the world. And we're going to see something similar now because of the size of what's happening. The size of the disruption is so much vaster than, uh, than we're and used to thinking about. And it'll take really um, years to play out, not just a few weeks or a few months. So it's not a matter of like, oh, how quickly until we get um, some kind of uh, treatment that works for coronavirus or um, how quickly until we get a vaccine. All those things are important, of course, for the actual control of the pandemic. But it sets, it's as though our, our system is basically like a series of dominoes and it set those dominoes falling and hitting each other and because of the fact that there are so many um, deep structural um, problems that have been developing over decades in our neoliberal system um, it's a little bit like a house of cards which once it starts falling i think we're going to see an impact probably a change in our global society as big as what we saw during the Second World War. I think that's the last time we saw, we, we've seen our society change in such a drastic way. And when we look at what that was like, and this is something I go into a little bit in this article, we, you realize that the world that people lived in in 1938 was fundamentally and structurally different than the world people came out of 
uh, no more than about you know eight and um, eight to ten years later, um, and that we we have to look at all things like geopolitical um, structures. Uh, things like what people take for granted as values, um, some of the sort of fundamental uh, structural elements of the economy. Those are the kinds of things that we'll be seeing shift in over the next few years. I'm not talking about the next few months now, but the next few years. Right, right. And, and one of the, uh, diff- I mean, it's quite interesting to look at that period, as you say. Uh, and clearly, you know, you have uh, a lot of talk now about, uh, which has been, uh, coming to fruition for, for some time now and the Green New Deal and, and, and initiatives like that taking uh, uh, the lead uh, from, from the New Deal uh, after this period of time. I guess one of the things that, that's noticeably different is, is political leadership. Uh, and and uh, it's hard to be very optimistic uh, as to the leadership that we have at the moment. Yes, well, the leadership we see around the world right now is, of course, abysmal. Um, and most of the countries, with a few shining exceptions of places uh, like New Zealand and a, and a few others, where um, we actually see quite the opposite, where there's an enlightened leadership that is actually um, showing what can happen to societies when they're actually led from a place of thoughtfulness and care and compassion rather than sort of strongman authoritarianism. And I think that's where I see actually some of the p- potential for hope. Um, and again, if we go back to that sort of World War II analogy, um, some, if so, for somebody who was living through those early years of that war, um, in 19, years like 1941 or 1942, there would have been very, very little reason to feel much sense of hope. It, it just seemed like everywhere you looked, the darkness was getting even bleaker and the potential for the future was looking even grimmer. Um, but my, one of the things I, I think is important is that it's in the very, it's when normal main, people in the mainstream um, start to see the implications of these uh, negative trends in society and in leadership that they begin to join the uh, a sort of movement towards realizing we need something different. And that's what we see potentially happening right now. You, you know, right now, as we go into the day, day by day, we're seeing people like Trump and Bolsonaro um, just, um, just stumping on any sense of civility, any sense of uh, um, scientific validity, any sense of anything that most common people uh, think are, are good values in our world right now. And we're sort of outraged, and it's horrifying. But that very outrage and horror is what can lead a lot of people who have been accepting the things that have been wrong with our society so far to finally wake up and say, no, this is not acceptable, and we're not going to carry on like this. I'm going to get behind some of these new, more progressive ideas that I hadn't really given much uh, thought about before. So it's almost like a yin-yang type of thing. Like as As things get worse... Um, that sows the seeds for a new wave of more positive humanitarian approaches to life. The big question that I have, basically, is really how bad do things have to get before that um, that shift happens? That's something that I think is unknowable. Um, and uh, that's something that really frightens me also. But at the same time, I think that's where the approach that we take to what's going on is so important. Because by um, 
by sort of unwaveringly keeping focused on what are the positive things that are possible, we actually have an impact on maybe shifting the, those waves before they get too bad and too out of control. Yeah. Um, to, to what extent do you think um, that the people, um, that the sense of what's possible is, is, is opening in a, in, a, in a new way that maybe that uh, we've seen tremendous government action in on, on, on many different fronts and uh, some for some certainly it, it, it seems uh, that, that the, the way the, 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 the economy was constituted uh, was, was somewhat arbitrary and and these things that we were told were written in stone and couldn't be changed were fundamental suddenly you discover that actually not at all um, you know and, and, and the money tree and so forth although there's all kinds of questions about how that's going to be dealt with uh, down the road. But with that as well, uh, a sense of uh, appreciation of, 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 of the values that of, of the public sphere, of, 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 the, of the state, uh, in the health side of things, and, and uh, in other areas as well. Do you think that that's significant? You know, I think that you really touched on one of the key um, factors that we're looking at right now. The, there's this concept some people may be familiar with called the Overton window, which is this notion of um, what the, it's like the window of what are the issues and political ideas that can be talked about seriously in sort of mainstream political discourse. And it's interesting because that name, the Overton window um, was uh, and originally created by somebody called Overton, who was one of the neoliberal uh, sort of protagonists back in the 1960s um, when the whole idea of neoliberalism was considered to be so outlandish and freakish that no, very few people could even seriously uh, talk about it and be taken seriously. And, and so his idea, uh, along with other people who formed the sort of core group of neoliberalism, was to sow these radical seeds in uh, communities and academic communities and political uh, um, PowerPoints around the world until they actually could become taken more seriously and essentially open the Overton window to include those ideas. Well, of course, that got done so successfully that the last few decades, um, what was once outlandish and outside of that window is central to that window. And what I think we see happening right now with coronavirus is the Overton window is getting blown way open meaning that things that could not be talked about seriously in mainstream political discourse are now actually there in the editorials of establishment newspapers like the Financial Times or um, not just the New York Times, but the Wall Street Journal thing, um, and places like that. And that is both <clears throat> actually terrifying and um, incredibly exciting. Um, it's terrifying because ideas such as a surveillance state um, and, you know, people uh, allowing their smartphones to monitor where they're going at all times are ideas that previously would have been considered totally unacceptable, but have now entered the Overton window from one direction. And at the same time, um, these incredible ideas like universal basic income, which I view as one of the most uh, potentially transformative ideas out there, 
um, along with other notions like the four-day work week and things like that, and now entering the Overton window from the other direction. So all of a sudden, um, the political discourse is much broader. And this is this notion, once again, of the crucible. What are the things that will start to be seen and recognized as part of the landscape when um, things start to sort of harden again, which may be still a year or two before that actually happens. Yes, it's uh, interesting because I think it was Friedman who said that uh, in times of crisis, people pick up the ideas that are lying around. I think somebody's, I mean, uh, Rutger Bregman, who, who wrote about that recently. But yeah. you know, the ideas that were lying around, they weren't just lying around in the sense that there was a very targeted, focused, deliberate political project to develop these ideas, the Montpelleran Society uh, and other organizations, a myriad uh, 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 think tanks and other kinds of organizations. And of course, uh, you know, it, it, it vested interests as well, uh, you know, large sums of money to be, uh, you know, won, won by corporations and, and, and particular uh, niches and, and things like that. Do we have anything like that? Is is there, you know, these ideas? There, are, there are so many ideas around, but it, do they cohere? I mean, into in, into in, into a, a powerful, do you think, uh, project? I think they do, in fact, and that's actually one of the things that gets me personally um, more excited than almost anything else. And um, and I think really the only reason we don't hear so much about the coherent ways in which these new ideas are presented is because the mass media is really owned by the same uh, major corporate interests that have a vested interest in keeping things the way they are right now. So it's hard for some of these ideas to get talked about as broadly as they could. But if we look around at at new ideas in economics, um, new ideas in education, new ideas in technology, new ideas in global governance. There is a core understanding um, that I think they're all, they all come from. It's a shared understanding. It's a sense of interconnectedness. It's a sense of recognizing that actually in complete contradiction to the neoliberal sense that actually we're all individuals. And as Margaret Thatcher famously said, there's no such thing in society. There's only individuals and family. Um, comes from the absolute different direction, which is that um, as human beings, we actually define ourselves uh, as much by our community as our separate existence. And as living entities on earth, we are very, we are very much interdependent and part of all life on earth. And so these ideas are based on that sense of deep interconnectedness. And you see, that, um, one of the ways that these ideas get uh, sort of cohered together that I get excited about is this notion of really the vision of a different kind of civilization, one that's called an ecological civilization, which really refers to the idea of a civilization that is based not on wealth-affirming values that our current uh, civilization is based on, but life-affirming values. And so the whole basis of things like economics or politics, or uh, technology, or you name it, would be about what, how can things be structured for the benefit of all life and for humans to thrive on a flourishing planet rather than for some people to get rich at the expense of others. 
So when you look at that shared basis, you see so many new ideas, um, exciting ones that are that are coherent with each other. Uh, and you know, we we can sort of explore some of those together. But I I see that as actually um, what is one of the most exciting potentials going forward. Right, absolutely. And uh, I, I've spoken over the years to 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 various different uh, thinkers, uh, economists, and so forth. With with you know Herman Daly and Kate Raworth and and and, and many others. Um, so I, I do uh, believe that there are some very powerful ideas out there. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that uh, a little bit later. Uh, I, I I recently came across a statement. Uh, I, I guess setting the scene. You know, uh, when we come out of this, the, the governments are going to be hugely in debt. Um, uh, massively indebted, uh, and the, the the whole financial situation is going to be very different. Uh, I think someone said, uh, "Quote was whenever climate change policies are seen to conflict with economic growth and development, climate change loses every time." So we're going to be in a very difficult situation financially, and uh, a, a lot of these uh, initiatives uh, surely they're going to cost uh, a, a lot of money. Uh, how do you see that being resolved, Jeremy? And again, um, after 2008, we saw these issues being resolved in ways that only increased inequities, where uh, these um, kind of absurd thinking, uh, which kind of um, reduced government spending, uh, forced the masses of people in most countries around the world to deal with the impacts of a recessionary environment while they allowed billionaires uh, to just get far, far wealthier at their expense. Um, so the big question is, will we see a rerun of that sort of 2008 uh, type response or will it go in the other direction? Um, and that's where I have some hope that as people, if they were sort of pushed close to the edge by 2008, that now they, they, are en masse pushed beyond the edge and demand something different. And, and, you know, just one simple way of responding to this is just to look at the incredible wealth that the um, billionaires now hold as a result of some of the dynamics of the sort of internet-based economy and these um, wealthiest uh, uh, the, the wealthiest corporations getting even wealthier. So that... If you just look at the wealth of um, the multi-billionaires as an aggregate, they, they have as much wealth basically as something like the GDP of Germany. And so you, if you imagine if you could actually cap some of those some of that billionaire's wealth and force that back into the global economy. So the things concepts like a wealth tax, um, those are some of the ideas that now could potentially gain currency and begin to um, shift direction towards a more equitable world. Yes, uh, ecological civilization, Jeremy. You're you're, you're very interested. Uh, what what would some of the, the the key elements there be? Well, some of them are ones that have now begun to be talked about in that Overton window. So things like a universal basic income, uh, some of the sort of basic elements that allow uh, a a true um, dignity for human beings in all kinds of ways um, in every aspect of their life. So 
if you look sort of first at what are, what are the sort of basic principles of an ecological civilization, um, and then maybe we can talk about what that kind of leads to. Um, the, the basic notion is to look at ecologies um, around, the, uh, around the world, uh, things like jungles or things like lakes or any kind of ecological system. And what we discover is that there's principles that allow them to be resilient and healthy, sometimes for millions of years to adapt to changes as they take place and do it in a resilient way, um, very different from the way our society works. And then the question is, can we apply some of those principles to actually human civilization and human society? So some of those principles, for example, are that recognizing that the health of every little part of an ecology is required for the health of the whole. So if you apply that principle to human society, then it gets to things like a universal basic income or education for all, housing for all, healthcare for all, recognizing that a society can only be healthy when every individual human being within that society has the conditions for thriving. Um, another very important thing to look at in an ecology is a sense of reciprocity that uh, when um, any entity in an ecology takes from the ecology, it also gives back. So the, basically the waste products of one uh, organism are actually the nutrition and food for another. So the whole energetics of the system stays stable even while the system is kind of thriving. Um, and so similarly, uh, a, an ecological civilization would look at things like, uh, say, a circular economy where um, rather than building products just to be thrown out um, and uh, disposed of and consuming the earth at a faster and faster rate, we actually, um, things get built with the idea of being sustainable. Um, and they're built on recycled products. And they're also built with sustainability built into them so they can be fixed rather than thrown away. We'd see, I think, crucially, uh, right now our society is based on um, is really dominated by large transnational corporations that are based solely on increasing shareholder profit as fast as they can. And we sometimes don't even realize how much we're dominated by those big corporations. If you look at the largest hundred economies in the world right now, 69 of them are not countries, but are actually the transnational corporations. They dominate like really every aspect of our lives, from politics to culture to um, business to finance, you name it. And one of the most powerful ideas would simply be to say that these corporations need to be restructured and they could only have their charters um, ongoing if they actually change the, the, the basis of their charter, that rather than being solely there to increase shareholder value, they have what's called a triple bottom line, which means um, they have to be there to optimize for not just profits, but also people and planets. People meaning um, their workers, the communities in the areas in which um, their plants are, and their customers. And the planet being basically uh, that anything they do has to be able to be regenerative for the earth for a sustainable earth rather than consuming it at an, at an impossible place. Now, that's a massive shift, but it's a shift that could actually happen relatively easily if there's enough political will behind it. It's not something that involves changing fundamental structures, only structures of thought and shifting political will. 
Yeah, it's interesting. You, you say structures of thought. Um, to, to what extent are you talking about something that's different from, from, from capitalism? Are you talking about some kind of communism? People will say, oh, we've heard this all before. We've been there before. We don't want to go there again. I mean, this uh, debate and dichotomy, which has been around in the 20th century for so long, you know, the kind of uh, left versus right. Is there something beyond that? Yeah, thank you for raising this question. I think it absolutely is. In fact, I think the whole sort of right versus left, capitalism versus communism kind of debate is really, it's a, a 20th century debate that has just expired. Um, and what we're talking about is a completely different way of looking at things. I, I think if you do look in the 20th century at communism, uh, well, one, we know that that whole sort of state authoritarian approach absolutely failed. Um, it was um, totally destructive of human life, genocidal in many ways in both the Soviet Union and China. Um, and also, it, um, it actually shared with capitalism this belief in um, unlimited growth as being the source of power and what a society should be aiming to do. Um, and we're talking about not growth in the quality of life, but simple growth in the amounts of destruction to the earth and growth in um, what's sort of measurable by GDP. So we're talking about a very different way of looking at things. And, and it's as f different from state-owned communism structures as it is from these mega transnational capitalist structures we're in right now. It's one that looks at society from what's called like a fractal basis. And again, if we look at uh, how ecologies are structured, um, the concept of a fractal is like a pattern that repeats itself at different scales throughout the entire system. So from a, if you look at a living system, you see patterns in individual cells, which form parts of organisms, which form parts of communities within the ecology, and then which share with all other organisms the whole sense of an ecological pattern. So similarly, if we apply that to human society, what you see is both from a sense of political power and economic power. And what you're looking at is kind of devolving power down to the lowest level at which that power can be effectively wielded. It's a concept that's known as subsidiarity. Um, and the way that that would work is basically small communities make their own judgments about what they should be doing for themselves in terms of sustainability, in terms of agriculture they're growing, in terms of um, how they look after themselves. And they're also recognized that fractally they're part of much larger systems. So it would actually lead to um, really systems where the, the smaller parts are um, somewhat autonomous, but also recognize their responsibilities and their shared interdependence with the system as a whole. And the system as a whole um, takes uh, an ownership of some of the issues that can only be solved from the larger, more global perspective, but is always pushing the power back down towards the lower levels rather than trying to hold it um, from that sort of more authoritarian top level. So it's a very different way of looking at things as different from communism as it is from capitalism. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, capitalism is, is immensely resilient and we're all now somehow tied in together in this world where we're, we're on our Apple computers or we're buying from Amazon or we, we, we have our uh, connections and are quite dependent on these corporations in many different ways. Um, 
How do, how do we get there, Jeremy? Uh, a, a, a small question towards the end of the podcast. <laughs> but um, how, how, how do you see this change happening? Yeah, well, I think the first step has to be for people to imagine the possibility of it happening in the first place and to start to talk about these ideas um, as if they can actually be affected in reality. And we see that with universal basic income. For a long time, that idea was considered complete, completely pie in the sky. And uh, again, outside of the Overton window. Now it's something that even uh, established institutions like the Financial Times are actually saying we need to seriously be looking at in the sort of next step going forward. So similarly, I think the whole notion of an ecological civilization, the whole idea of corporations existing for humanity and to actually help to regenerate life rather than destroy life on the earth, um, are things that we can, ideas we can be sharing and talking about um, as human beings who actually care about each other um, until they do become talked about more and more mainstream and become part of our sort of shared um, set of ideas in the Overton window going forward. And I think that um, the other thing that is so critical is that as we see things moving in the wrong direction and uh, we see authoritarian regimes taking over and we see the power of these corporations getting even bigger, is rather than getting kind of lost in despair, is just recognizing these um, how in complex systems, it's when things unravel that actually uh, the opportunity exists for them to be rewoven in different ways. So to take all of these negative developments we see and view them just as much as an opportunity for these new ideas, and um, ideas that um, lead towards flourishing of life on this planet to actually um, come forward. I think that's what's key. And that's what I was saying earlier about how this is not a spectator sport. This is an actual and complex system that we are all embedded in. And we all have this opportunity, uh, responsible and opportunity to take part in building a much more flourishing future together. That's a great vision, Jeremy. Now you've spent a considerable amount of time studying, as you say, patterns, underlying patterns of meaning uh, over, over history. Are there some examples, do you think, where you can point to where you've seen this change in ideas translate into action, political action and, and change that are good examples that would help us? Yes, well, I see um, the, the kind of change that we're talking about, the really fundamental shift in how we actually can get meaning uh, from the world in a different kind of way is something that's only really happened a few times in society. So we're not just talking about, um, we, we're talking about something even bigger, for example, than I said earlier about the change from before the Second World War to after the Second World War. That, that was a big structural shift. That's the kind of shift we're seeing right now, um, pre-COVID versus post-COVID. But the kind of um, change I'm talking about of moving towards something like an ecological civilization, I think we have to go back in history to probably the scientific revolution as the last time we see something quite as significant taking place there. Where, and back in the 17th century in Europe, um, a, a new way of looking at the world was taking place. There were new ways of making sense of things that people like Newton and Kepler and Galileo were excited by and sharing. And there was this sense of possibility arising from that, this recognition that the system of thought that had been there for over a millennium, this sense of a 
civilization built on Christianity, uh, a civilization where built absolutely on the sort of authority of the Bible and the authority of the uh, Catholic Church. And some of these fundamentals um, could be completely uh, superseded by a different way of thinking that made empirical sense and a different way of thinking that made theoretical sense, where people could work together uh, from one generation to the next, all yes, in from different countries, to start to build a new infrastructure of thought. That was a super exciting time, and you had people like Francis Bacon, who was like the prophet of that age, talking about this is our ability to um, you know conquer nature, to do things in a completely different way for the good of all of humanity, um, and they succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. So now we've been living now in a global civilization for hundreds of years coming from that. Um, and th while that was incredibly, it, it brought incredible benefits to many, many people around the world, it was so successful that it led to the, some of these imbalances we're dealing with right now. So the very ideas that were so powerful back in the 17th century of conquering nature or seeing nature as a machine that we can sort of take part and understand are some of the things that are causing the destructive behaviors we see right now. So I, I think that we're talking about a shift on a scale as big as that, where we need to recognize a different way of making sense of the world, share with others around us uh, how what's possible, and sort of build on that infrastructure to see that change take place. I think it's a tall order. It's a hugely tall order. Um, but I, And the question is, can it happen in time before our civilization really sort of self-destructs over the next couple of generations with climate breakdown and ecological breakdown? I think that, you know, these are some of the biggest questions we have. But to get to your point earlier about Milton Friedman's statement that when, when sort of things start collapsing, the ideas, people look to the ideas that are lying around. Um, these are the ideas that we need to not just allowed to lie around, but literally kind of seed into the earth so they can be really growing when, when they need it the most. Uh, very interesting. I guess so often it's framed uh, pretty much in, in uh, terms of economics or economic systems, as we're talking about. But you're talking about something really deeper here. We were talking about materialism itself. You know, we talk about degrowth, we talk about the growth in the economy, we talk about consumerism and the, you know, all the problems that arise from that. But underlying it, uh, this idea of, you know, the material world and the importance of the material world, you know, I guess, which is linked to the, you know, Newtonian physics and so forth, which a particular model. But now we've got quantum physics, you know, we've got new ways of seeing the world. How does that translate into, into the, the, those scientific you know, discoveries and new ideas? Are you seeing them translating into different ways of, of, of seeing possibilities of, of, of uh, meaning? I, I, I am, in, in fact, Fergal. And that's uh, where I personally get very excited because, as you say, we, when you look at that sort of deeper layers of meaning, what we see is that the system we're in right now and the problems we're dealing with, they're not just sort of problems of capitalism. Uh, they're not just uh, problems of uh, uh, particular policy here or there, but they're ultimately um, related to sort of problems of meaning. And when 
every human being is born right now and begins to sort of grow and make sense of things. They're bombarded by a set of messages that come to them through the internet or through television, and then um, just from all the different sort of sense-making equipment out there, telling them things like, you are um, a, a separate individual. Um, your place on, on this place is to sort of optimize just for yourself um, because there's no real, the, the real sort of meaning of the world is about status and is about uh, consumption. And r- even when you're just a little kid, you get these messages that if you have this particular cereal or this particular toy, your status will be greater than the other kid next to you. And so you can feel better about yourself. And so these things are ingrained in people from early on. But as human beings, we actually evolved. What made us really unique as human beings is something very different, was actually our sense of community and our sense of being um, sort of part of our other uh, other humans around us and values like compassion um, and altruism and a sense of shared identity with something larger than us. Those things are actually natural to our sort of human DNA, but they have to be sort of bombarded out of us by media. So what I see as the potential is for us to really, it's not so much that we have to learn a new way of of being or sense-making, but we simply have to learn how we are being conditioned by the mass media into acting in ways that are against our own flourishing and learn how we can discard them and get more deeply connected with our own inherent sense of meaning our own sense of being uh, looking for something that is more fulfilling to our own quality of our own lives and gaining um, a sense of value in life from our shared family and community connections and feeling part of all of nature. And that's really what what I call in in this next book I'm writing, I call the, the web of meaning that we as humans are actually in this interconnected web and recognizing that and living our lives into that gives us an opportunity to be part of really a new, uh, a new set of possibilities in the world. Fantastic. Fantastic. When's your book coming out, Jeremy? Well, it'll be coming out next spring, spring 2021. Um, and uh, it's going to be published in the UK and Commonwealth by Profile Books and in North America by New Society Press. And um, yeah, the, the full title of the book is The Web of Meaning, integrating science and traditional wisdom to find our place in the universe. And so as we've been talking about on this podcast, it really looks at how modern uh, system science and systems thinking um, leads the way to a, a deep understanding of interconnectedness that traditional wisdom such as Buddhism and Taoism and indigenous wisdom has really been showing us for millennia. And so this kind of split between science and sort of spiritual understanding that is so, so embedded in our modern uh, worldview, it shows that split is basically spurious. There is no real split. That Actually, we can look at the world from both a scientific and a spiritual perspective and feel into that same sense of deep interconnectedness. That's very interesting. And surely one of the lessons and insights from the crisis is at the very least, a sense of interconnectedness and a realization, you know, of the importance uh, of the connectedness, the way the global economy has been structured, but also the way our communities 
and and and, and so forth. And maybe maybe uh, we will take away with us some kind of inspiration and understanding. Uh, thank you so much, Jeremy, for sharing your, your your the great work you're doing, your ideas, and your inspiring vision. And I wish you the best success and with your book. And hopefully, we'll speak to you uh, in due course when your book is published. Sounds great. I look forward to that. And thank you so much, Virgo, for a, a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. <laughs>